0: Good morning, and welcome to another episode of the podcast, Insanity, A Peace of Mind. I am your host, Stephanie. All right, this is episode 32, and it is about parenting. But... First, a personal report about task management. So last week I did a podcast about the difference between time management and task management. If you haven't already listened, it is worth going back to. In summary, the idea is you cannot manage time, but you can manage the tasks and activities that you do within the 24 hours a day that you have. I talked about efficiency and effectiveness. Efficiency means to work smarter and not harder. Translated, don't take two steps to do something that can be done in one. Well, I did something that, I actually planned something that was phenomenally inefficient. And so I want to tell you about it. I'm cleaning up some stuff in my office. have a lot of shredding to do. I have a shredding box, which I put a a big garbage can into in order to catch all of the shredding. The bag was getting full, but I knew I could fit more into it. So I took the bag out and I put it on the floor in the office. And then I started to shred just inside the box, thinking that I will shred And then I will dump the shredding into the garbage bag that still had room. As I'm shredding, I keep stuffing it down and stuffing it down. And I'm packing it pretty tight. And then I think, oh, it's probably time to empty it. So I pick up the box, which I am planning on dumping into the garbage bag that is already half or three quarters of the way full. And it's not fitting very well and the shredding is not coming out very well because I packed it down. This whole fiasco ends up with me having to pick up 90% of the shredding from the box off of the floor because it's missing the garbage bag. That is not an example of working smarter. That is an example of working harder. That was not efficient. That was inefficient. I took Almost three extra steps, which I planned out. So that right there should tell you that it's worth paying attention to and being aware of how you're using your time and your tasks to better improve your task management. That was my experience. This week, for those of you who have listened, keep working on categorizing your tasks. They can be categorized into necessary, deceptive, wasteful, or quality tasks. And work to pay attention to the important things versus the unimportant things. And keep track of how this newfound way of managing your day is working for you. If you increase your effectiveness and your efficiency, you will naturally and automatically reduce the stress and the sense of busyness that might be overwhelming your life. Now, I'm going to move on to the topic for today's podcast, which is about parenting. I just finished uh, listening on audio to a book called The Whole Brain Child, 12 Revolutionary Strategies to Nurture Your Child's Developing Mind. It is by Daniel J. Siegel and Tina Payne Bryson. Dan Siegel is a medical doctor, and he is also a clinical professor of psychiatry psychiatry, psychiatry, psychiatry at the UCLA School of Medicine. He graduated from Harvard Medical School and is the author of several books. No Drama Discipline, um, workbooks that go along with the books that he's written, Mindsight, Aware, are just a few of them. Uh, He does a pretty good job, and he does a lot with mindfulness, and so I really like him. Tina Bryson is a PhD, and she is a pediatric and adolescent psychotherapist. She consults with parents, and she has a parenting education Uh, program at a place called the Mindsight Institute, which is in connection with Dan Siegel's Mindsight books and program. It was about a six hour listen on audio. Obviously, you can speed it up if that's your jam and make it shorter than that. It was pretty easy to get through and I believe it was worth every minute which is why I am going to talk about it pretty extensively in today's podcast. It was written and released about nine years ago, so this is not new information. And I assume many of you have probably heard of the no drama discipline approach to parenting um, and that kind of thing, all of which come from Siegel and Bryson. They've written a bunch of books together A lot of what came out of The Whole Brain Child is in the public domain and available on a variety of websites. And I will link to some of them. And this is where I got, in addition to the book, which I don't actually have a hard copy of, I retrieved a lot of this information from online resources. And I will link to them in the show notes if I did not already say that. The premise of this book rests on the idea of integration of the whole brain. Integration means to incorporate into a larger unit or to unite with something else. And as it relates to the brain, this means creating a way for our right brains and our left brains to work and communicate together, and a way for our downstairs brains and our upstairs brains to communicate and work together. There is a Good deal of science in this book, but it is laid out in a way that it can actually be understood by children. I mean, people of all ages. If you've got a brain, you will like this book. If you have anything to do with kids, you will find this book invaluable. Understanding a child's developing brain and using that that knowledge to raise happier, healthier, and more emotionally resilient children will have lasting, dare I say, generational benefits. Siegel and Bryson write to help parents, grandparents, therapists, teachers, or any caregiver to do the work of helping kids integrate their brains. One of the things that I really liked about this book was that it also teaches you how to use everyday moments. You don't have to work terribly hard to create or facilitate or produce moments of teaching. You don't have to sit down and lecture. You can use the good moments in your day, the bad moments of your day, the terrible and embarrassing moments to facilitate whole brain integration. Before I get into talking about the strategies that the book talks about, I'm going to give it a little bit of background about the brain to help facilitate better understanding of the book. The brain has a right hemisphere and a left hemisphere, and an upstairs and a downstairs. Briefly, the left side likes logic, lists, linguistics, details, rules, and order. The right side of the brain attends to nonverbals, emotions, personal memories, creativity, and connects to the downstairs brain where emotional information is processed. The two sides of the brain, left hemisphere and right hemisphere, are connected by a bundle of fibers that need to work together in order to be integrated. Children mostly operate from their right brains because they can't use logic. They don't understand time, and they don't have enough vocabulary to express the way they're feeling. Picture a toddler insisting on dressing themselves. Now picture you trying to help them dress themselves because you need to be somewhere. This usually ends in disaster, and your small child does not have the words to explain to you what her frustration is, but she can be very emotional. Our downstairs brains run our autonomic functions. It develops pretty early and controls breathing as well as our strong emotional reactions, which are anger, our flight response, our fight response, fear, our flight and freeze responses. The amygdala is in our downstairs brain, and this is the reason we often react to things instead of responding to things. Reacting generally comes out of emotion, and responding generally comes from logic. The downstairs brain is where everything we need to live and survive takes place. This is the part of the brain most utilized by a crying infant, because by necessity, it is always about strong emotional reactions. That is how an infant gets their parent to attend to them. The upstairs brain, which includes the cerebral cortex and the middle prefrontal cortex, develops later in childhood and on into adulthood, and way into adulthood. The prefrontal cortex in in an adult human being generally does not reach full development until sometime between 26 and 30. The upstairs brain is where mental processes happen. This is where good decisions are made. Self-awareness resides here. Our ability to control our emotions and our body takes place here. This is where we have empathy and a sense of right or wrong. This area of the brain is not always active in children. And sometimes we run into adults who don't use it either. This information is really useful as it relates to parenting or adulting or just being a decent human being. It means integrating the right and left and the upstairs and downstairs for better emotional health and well-being. Doctors Siegel and Bryson give the following strategies to integrate these Four components, but two sides together, and an upstairs and a downstairs together. And it is useful information for anybody dealing with kids or anybody with a brain. In this podcast, as I go through all this information, anything I say about parents, adults, caregivers, or children, kids, young people, all of this is interchangeable. I'm not Um, I'm not, I'm not considering any one of these people more important than other. We are all part of a community and a village and all of us have access to the opportunity forget access. We all have opportunity to influence the lives of some young person around us. At least I hope so. The strategies that follow are described in different chapters of the book And they give examples and supporting information. So it is definitely a book worth reading. And I'm going to go through the rest of this podcast giving you some highlights. Strategy number one is connect with the right and redirect with the left. Big emotions are a sign that kids are operating from their right brain. Adults or caregivers often approach these emotional outbursts using our left brain strategies. So we say things like, everything will be okay. Or we try and talk them out of being afraid of the dark. Or we will try to distract them from some seemingly simplistic thing that has upset them. These strategies don't actually work. What does work is connecting with them, tuning into their emotions, Acknowledging their feelings, their fears, or their misunderstandings. Validating these because then you open a pathway that helps them integrate simple, age-appropriate left brain logic and language. When you have allowed the connection to take place, which is an emotion-to-emotion connection, the children or the child, whatever, calms down, the amygdala stops being hyperactive, and they are able to engage with you in problem-solving or calming strategies. But if you don't connect emotion to emotion first, you are extending the lifespan of the emotional dysregulation. All right, let me see if I can think of an example. Um, Nighttime, let's do bedtime. Okay, so you've got a kid and you're putting them in bed and everything seems fine, teeth brushing, drinks, stories, songs, whatever your bedtime routine is and you get them in bed and you shut the door and you're just getting ready to relax and you hear the pitter patter of little feet. And that pair of little feet has carried your child into your bedroom where they announce that they can't sleep in their room because of the hairy green avocado that is in their closet. Well, you know there is no hairy green avocado in their closet, and it is inconceivable to you that at this time of night, you have to even acknowledge this as a reality you have two choices. You can either say, you have got to be kidding me. I have told you a dozen times that after we say, uh, after we read our last story that you cannot come out of your room, which does nothing to connect with the child. It does nothing to validate what at this very moment is a reasonable concern. Well, I take it back. Harry avocados are not reasonable, but Your kid said it, so you've got to go with it. You're doing nothing to connect emotion to emotion. So you are going to prolong the life of this frustrating episode of trying to get your kid to bed. If, however, you say, you take your kid in a warm embrace, give him a little hug and say, I can see that there is something about this that is concerning you. Could we walk back to your room and see what it is that you're talking about? Well, you have immediately told your child that you care about how they're feeling. Nine times out of 10, this will shorten the life of I can't get my kid to bed episodes. And once that is done, your child will have the ability to settle more into their logic side of the brain when you say things like, we looked and we didn't find anything. Or how would you like to clean out your closet tomorrow? Or any other thing that might help problem solve this hairy avocado. Don't ask me why I chose that. That's never happened in my life. So connect With the right, redirect with the left. Strategy number two is name it to tame it. This can be feelings, words, you can increase the vocabulary that you use for emotion words, you can use pictures, and really important for kids, you can use stories. Oftentimes, adults try really hard to talk kids out of their unpleasant emotions. We don't want them to feel painful feelings or relive difficult experiences. So we work to protect our kids from that. This is not a good strategy because the experiences for kids don't feel resolved. And then things come up later, and then our neural pathways are created that associate these painful events with certain outcomes. As adults, we need to have the ability, we need to take the opportunity. We cannot be afraid of addressing the difficult experience or event at a time when the child is feeling calm and safe using left brain storytelling conversations about the experience. This is naming it by taming it. This can be done even with basic. Unpleasant experiences. A skinned knee at a swimming pool for a two year old. Mom says, We went swimming today, didn't we? Two year old says, Yes. Mom says, What happened when you were running? Kid says, Fell down. Mom says, That's right. And then what happened? Kid says, Got a band aid. And mom says, And did you swim after kid says, yes, it's that simple. All you're doing is helping the child put the pieces together in a beginning, middle and an end so that they don't associate swimming with a negative experience. And you can do this with a two year old, a 10 year old, a 20 year old help tell stories. After there, after the emotional response has been reduced or relieved, then you go into left brain storytelling or emotion vocabulary. Strategy number 3 is engage, don't enrage. After You have connected with a child who has experienced big emotions, which can be fear, frustration, helplessness, rejection. The way I explained in strategy one, you validate their emotion. You connect with them by touching, by hugging, by sitting them on your lap, by older kids. You can sit down across from them, connect somehow Validate that they're feeling a certain way. After all of that is done, then let them participate in solving their problem or finding a solution or engaging in consequence building, whatever. I don't think that's the right word. The more involved a child can be in finding these solutions and creating collaborative consequences, for themselves, the better integrated they become. Now, I want to make a little caveat here that Bryson and Siegel made repeatedly. And that is this does not mean nothing we're talking about here means you have to let kids get away with bad behaviors. Bad behaviors are bad behaviors. If your frustrated three year old, hits the dog every time he's upset, that's not okay. But yelling at them about hitting the dog at the moment they're hitting the dog is completely wasted on them. It is making no inroads into either their left brain or their right brain. It is creating an increase of dysregulated emotion, usually fear because someone yelled at them, which keeps them in their right brain and their downstairs brain. No, upstairs brain. See, now I can't remember. But it keeps them in their emotion side. And kids do not listen to you when they are in their emotion side of their brain. So you don't have to let them get away with bad behavior. Okay, long pause while I find my place. Uh, Okay. Strategy number four is use it or lose it. And this is accomplished by exercising the upstairs brain, which to my previous point is the emotion center of the brain. Remember, this is a slowly developing area. Sometimes takes into, well, always takes into adulthood for full development. And it is important to intentionally exercise this area. And this can be done by doing the ever favorite thing of letting your kids make decisions, age appropriate decisions. This is going to have a lot to do with your family circumstances, what kinds of things you allow your kids to participate in as far as choosing their own foods or their own clothes or you know, whether they want to go to this park or that park, this movie or that movie, I don't know, whatever. But this can happen in a hundred little different ways every day. The red cup or the blue cup. Do you want to drive to school today or take the bus? Do you want to practice before you do your homework or after you do your homework? Helping your kids practice Making decisions is using the uh, mental faculties that they need to integrate their upstairs and downstairs brains. Another way to do this, use it or lose it, is to help children regulate their emotions and control their physical body. You cannot do this if you can't, you cannot do this for kids if you cannot do this for yourself. Using calming techniques, deep breaths, counting to 10, belly breathing, nostril breathing, some sort of meditative or mindfulness practice. This kind of stuff needs to be practiced in your life so you can help your kids do it in their life. Episode 10 of This podcast is called Mindfulness for Kiddos. And it has a lot of really good ways to practice mindful awareness with children of all ages. Inside, outside, at a park, driving in the car to school. There is no special equipment and no special place that you need for this to take place. And my example is... My darling granddaughter. Here with me is my granddaughter, and she is going to help illustrate some of the things that she is learning about how to integrate her left brain, her right brain, her upstairs brain, and her downstairs brain. Harper, when Nora is crying, what do you say to Nora? I started Okay, you can tell her to stop it. What else do you tell her to do? Do you remember? If I whisper it to you, can you say it in your out loud voice? Uh Uh-huh. Can you use your big voice? Go ahead and use your big voice. Yeah, that's who you are. What's your, can you give me, what do you tell Nora when she's feeling upset? Take a breath, Nora. Take a breath, Nora. And when you're feeling sad, what helps you feel better? Feel sad. When you feel sad, what do you do that helps you feel better? Better. Mm -hmm. Do you sometimes want hugs? Yeah. Uh, Oh, thank you for that hug. What else do you like to do when you're feeling sad? What do you do when you're feeling mad? Right like here. hmm That's the microphone. Do you sometimes uh, want, uh, sometimes you want a hug, right? And do you sometimes take deep breaths? Okay. Can you show me in the micro, can you, in the microphone, can you show me how to take deep breaths? Very good. Do deep breaths sometimes help you feel better when you're sad? Yeah. Does mommy help you take deep breaths? Yeah. And when mommy's upset, what does she sometimes do? Make a phone. Mhm. I don't know what that is. What does mom do sometimes when she's upset? Does she take some deep breaths too? Yeah. Can you deep breath in the microphone again for me? <sighs> again. <sighs> again. You're so good at that. Thank you. Okay, there's one more thing that you and mommy sometimes do when you're upset. Upset? Yes. Do you go find a pillow? Yeah. What do you do in the pillow? Scream. You scream in the pillow? And does that sometimes help you feel better? Yeah. Yeah. So when you're trying to do something and you get upset, upside does taking a breath help mm-hmm. okay was the trampoline out on the you were out on the trampoline weren't you okay i want to thank you very much for helping me with this mm-hmm. do you want to take two more big deep breaths for us one more okay thank you she's pretty good at it and that those weren't even her best examples so Maybe we'll make her a regular. Okay, we are still in the strategy for, which is use it or lose it. Another way to use it so you don't lose it is to teach kids self-awareness or self-understanding, at least to the extent that they can understand it at whatever age they are. This is where you have regular conversations about feelings and empathy Tell stories about new situations and have your kids talk about ways they would handle that new situation. You can model this to your kids or the kids around you by describing your own emotions associated with new adventures. For example, if you're starting a new job or going to a party that's making you a little bit nervous, you can say, I feel like I have butterflies in my stomach about going to this new job and meeting all these new people. And your kids will hear you say what your body feels like, what emotion you're having, and it helps them relate to you in an empathetic way. Ask children to guess how someone is feeling and what might make them feel better. You can do this at parks or at restaurants or you know, anywhere you see other people, it can be with family members. Have them guess by facial expressions or body movements what might be going on with another person. Also, within your families, show compassion and empathy towards yourself and members of your family. Uh, another one is morality: the differences, the difference between right and wrong, and how what we do impacts the world around us I don't know if that was a sentence but we're trying to keep teach kids this again there's a lot of room here for age-appropriate conversations and this will have a lot to do with what your values are as families or caregivers <clears throat> but this is also an important time and an important place for teaching morality and you're doing this with kids from the time they can, Show big emotion all the way up until the end has come, whatever that looks like. Okay, strategy number five is move it or lose it. This is the strategy that involves moving the body. Movement changes brain chemistry. That is for real. Kids will often have times when they are not connecting with their upstairs brain the place where decisions are made and they are wholly sucked into the downstairs right brain emotional state. Okay. As a side note or whatever, if I am messing these up in this podcast, you're going to just have to correct them for me. Okay. Um, right brain, left brain, upstairs, downstairs, because I can sometimes mess these up as I'm trying to keep them straight. All right. Anyway, so we've got kids who are not using their upstairs brain. They're not making good decisions and they are emotionally dysregulated running amok in the basement, AKA downstairs brain, their right brain emotional place. And, uh, it's a mess and adults do it all the time too. Okay um anxiety, depression, stress for adults, it's the same thing. We are not in our logic brain. We're not making decisions right. We're future tripping or whatever. Kids do the same thing. All of this to say, get moving. If you're with your kids, if you're trying to get them out of their emotionally unsettled state, play a tickle game. Have them do jumping jacks. Um play some music and have them dance chase your kids around the kitchen, go for a run, lift weights, whatever you can do to get your body movement, body moving. Movement changes the brain chemistry. Okay, next one. This is number six, strategy number six, and it's replaying memories. And before I explain what this strategy actually is, it is necessary to talk a little bit about memory and how memory works. I really like this information because it helped me realize that the way I remember things or recall memories does not make me a horrible person who has literally forgotten the birth of her last child. Um, but it sort of helps define how memories are kept, created, recalled, etc. Memories are not experiences that are filed away in the file cabinets of our mind. They cannot be recalled by retrieving a photocopy of kindergarten out of our memory file cabinet. That's not how they work. There are two types of memory. One is implicit memory, which is unconscious memory. Uh, This is the automatic stuff that is perceptional and emotional These are our unconscious memories that influence our behavior. These unconscious memories include how to button a shirt, brush your teeth, ride a bike, and for adults, how to drive a car. For a child, this is how he or she remembers the names of all his stuffed animals or which side of the bed they like to sleep on. This implicit memory requires no effort for recall. Explicit memory, which is our declarative memories, refers to the memories involving our personal experiences, or the autobiographical information of us, as well as factual information. And this kind of memory can be consciously retrieved and then articulated and spoken about. So this includes episodic and semantic memory. Episodic memory, which is autobiographical memory, is long-term where we store what we know about events and episodes based on time, space, people, and objects. So this would be the difference between the birth of my first child and the birth of my last child and how this all fits within time, space, events, objects, These type of memories include the first day of school for kids, uh, the first time you fell off your bike. They require conscious thought and can be talked about openly. These are episodic, explicit memories. Semantic memory is part of long-term memory, and it is responsible for storing information about the world. This would include knowledge about the meaning of words, as well as any kind of general knowledge. For example, for a five-year-old, it might mean knowing what PBS show comes on after Daniel Tiger. Or for a younger child, what the words mom and dad mean. Adults, young people, the capital of New Jersey, or what type of oil your Harley Davidson motorcycle uses. It involves conscious thought and can be declared. So that's semantic explicit memory. If we don't help children deal with troublesome or difficult experiences and episodes, remember, we're talking about troublesome to them, not us. We do not have to, we don't have to believe for one minute that what they're experiencing is real or true or anything like that. We just have to meet them where they are. So if we don't help our kids deal with these memories and we dismiss them, avoid them, or try and protect kids from them, then the emotions associated with those memories show up in behaviors. And often those behaviors are very stressful and they don't make much sense either to the kids or to the adults. For example, if you are in elementary school and you are playing on the tricky bars and you fall and get a concussion and you don't remember anything until you are sitting in the kiva which is a big area where at least four third grade classes are all sitting watching an assembly and you throw up your hot dog lunch all over the floor in front of everybody And then you have to sit there and wait until your mom, until someone comes and they take you to the office and they call your mom and your mom comes and gets you. That is the experience. And that experience, then unresolved, leads me to associate that unpleasant thing or the tricky bars or the kiva. Or something with throwing up at school. And I never get on the tricky bars again. Or I have stomach aches before school every day for the rest of the year. Okay? That is easily dismissed by a parent saying, it's okay, sweetheart. That was only a one-time thing. That will not happen again. But I, but the child, I, did I just... Did I just admit that was me? Oh my gosh. The child cannot disassociate those experiences. So it is important to help kids tell the story, which is the name it to tame it strategy, from which has a beginning and a middle and an end to understand what happened and disconnect the throwing up with the tricky bars or the throwing up with the assembly, or the throwing up with the school. I hope this is making sense. Any part of our implicit memories have the potential to create responses from us that cause us to act in ways we don't want to. That was the explanation I just gave. Start to pay attention to overreactions you may have when you're upset. And does the reaction make sense? Maybe you're experiencing unintegrated, implicit, and explicit memories. And being aware of this allows you to see how difficult experiences from your past might be affecting how you interact with your family. And no, I never prevented my kids from playing on the tricky bars or monkey bars or whatever we call them. A few good concussions in my life, I'm no worse for wear. So this takes us to strategy six, which is replaying the memories. This is where we are going to integrate our implicit and explicit. So this can be taught to kids using the analogy of your mind having a remote control that can fast forward, rewind, skip, pause, or stop whenever necessary. You can uh, give your kid the metaphorical remote control, ask them to tell the story of what happened from the time they went out to recess to the time they remember being home on the couch. And it can include anything they want, they can stop, they can fast forward over something that's making them uncomfortable and they can move forward. They can pause and they can stop. So if you give them this metaphorical rewind or fast forward, it gives them the tools to tell the story. They might skip over some unpleasant things. You don't want that to stay ignored. You want to help them go through the whole of it. Your job in using this metaphor is to help them rewind and remember instead of fast forward and forget. Okay, strategy seven is remembering to remember. And this is giving kids daily opportunities to talk about their experiences and memories. And you can do this by asking open-ended questions to encourage thinking. And thinking and giving answers that are different than just yes or no. For example, you can ask them what their favorite part of visiting grandma was, instead of just asking them if they liked visiting grandma. You can ask them who their favorite character in the movie was and have them tell you why instead of just asking them if they liked the movie. I have a friend who each night asks her kids to tell her ways that they were kind to others during the day. This is not only great as a remembering to remember strategy, but it is also a great empathy and compassion building strategy. So in that example, y'all get a twofer. Okay. Number eight. Oh, and in case you're wondering, there are 12. So number eight is let the clouds of emotion roll by. Teaching kids that feelings come and go. It says teaching kids that feelings come and go. Wow. How about teaching all of us that feelings come and go? Understanding verbalizing feelings is a great thing. Having a vocabulary to express your emotions. Fantastic. All that's great, but it is equally important to teach kids and remember yourself that feelings do not last forever. forever. Every feeling that any kid or any adult will ever have will change into a new one very shortly because remember, we cannot control our thoughts. Um, I don't even have an example for this one because it seems so self-evident. Come up with your own example. Okay. Strategy number nine is pay attention to what is going on inside. So Dr. Siegel and Dr. Bryson, I keep calling her Dr. Bryson. I hope her name is Tina Payne Bryson. If it's not, it's Tina Bryson Payne, and I apologize, but I will correct it in the show notes. So they use the anacronym S-I-F-T-SIFT. To help children become aware of S, sensations, which are messages sent from the body. Butterflies, sweaty palms, dry mouth, headache, that kind of thing. I is images. These are snapshots from their experiences in imagination. These are the things that they remember, but they may not be able to put in a coherent story or in context. Um, and images are right brain. Okay. Feelings. So that's the F feelings they are experiencing. This is also right brain. So sadness, frustration, uh, rejection, um, anger, that kind of thing. And then our thoughts, that's the T and the thoughts are what they use to understand their world. And that's left brain. So you're going to pay attention to what's going on inside. So you might have had an experience that creates a uh, butterflies in your stomach, or you might be engaging an experience that creates butterflies in your in your stomach. And the images are the last time you tried to ride your bike without training wheels, you fell, and the feelings are you're afraid. ride your bike. And the thought is that I might fall, but I'll be okay. That's the example of paying attention to what's going on inside. Um, equally important to this one, and this is number 10 is teaching kids that they can choose how to think and feel about what happens to them. So using the previous example, you can use your mind to calm your brain or kids can use their mind to calm their brain. See, this is all interchangeable because these strategies are not just for kids and adults should be using them for kids and with kids so that we are practicing them. All right, so uh, the experiences, I'm learning to ride my bike without my training wheels. The sensations are butterflies in my stomach because I'm a little nervous. The images are the skin knee from the last time I fell. The feeling is fear. The thought is I might fall down, but I'll be okay. I am teaching a child how to use their mind to calm their brain and teaching the child that they can choose how they want to respond to a negative or difficult, a negative emotion or a difficult experience. Number 11 is to increase family fun. This strategy is designed to help develop relationships, reinforcing kindness, compassion, and empathy. The adults in children's lives are responsible for creating positive relationships and encouraging positive relationships. Uh, Teaching kids how to have friends and relate well with their siblings. And we do this by helping them be receptive to others and not reactive. Receptive is where we use a little bit more of our um logic left brain and our upstairs decision-making and reactive because we don't want to be reactive. We want to be receptive. Reactive is where we are right-brained and downstairs. And we can do this by playing and being in each other's company. So play games, go for walks, go to movies, go to dinner, whatever it is you do as a family to have fun. Enjoyable experiences create a dopamine reward, which reinforces the value of positive relationships. That's pretty powerful. That's pretty powerful. Strategy number 12 is con- oh, excuse me. connect through conflict. I love this one. And I won't bother to tell you why, but I love this one. Conflict is unavoidable. It's completely unavoidable. Conflict is forever unavoidable. There will always be conflict. If I made that clear in all relationships. Our job is to teach kids how to handle conflict using empathy, which is seeing the conflict from another person's perspective and viewpoint. How might she be feeling when you cut her paper up? Whatever. And I mean, I hope that some of this is just screaming in your brain that this is stuff valuable to you too. Okay. Seeing conflict from another person's perspective and viewpoint. We can help them see this and interpret nonverbal cues so they can attune to others and then teach them how to repair the relationship after a conflict. Sibling rivalry, Um, sibling competition, um, competitive sports, playground fights, anything that happens in school. Remember, I've now gone through all 12 of these, okay? These strategies are meant to be used on the daily, all right? You're not looking for special moments. These moments are going to come up over and over and over again. Some are going to Some you're going to see coming and you're going to be able to use one of these strategies. Others are going to slap you upside the head and you are going to screw up royally. That's okay. It's not about perfection. It's about the process. Love and logic parenting. The parenting program of Love and Logic has a lot of good connecting through conflict strategies Validating is a good way to connect through conflict. If you're dealing with a 12-year-old who can't go to a party because of some misbehavior or disobedience or something that didn't get done that should have gotten done, whatever, you can connect through that conflict by being empathetic to his or her frustration. Even if you are the one preventing them from the party, you can be, um, you can be empathetic about how frustrating that is, and you can be sorry that this consequence has to take place. And that is a whole lot better for a 12-year-old relationship with his or her parents or caregivers than just a complete shutdown of, you did this and too bad, boo-hoo. So you connecting using empathy even in the midst of a conflict will help your children be able to attune to others. And then after the whole episode is over and the consequence has been given, you can repair and reconnect, uh, just by saying, I hope that doesn't happen again. And you know, I'm proud of you dealing with the consequences the way that you did. There's millions of ways that you can make connection through conflict. So, that's what you need to do. And, uh, you probably just heard my phone ding. Sorry about that. I took a little break and turned it back on. All right. Let's see what's next. I don't think anyone has all the answers. And I think the pendulum swings of parenting are pretty big And I think some of the new science behind parenting, for me, doesn't feel natural because I'm used to a different style of parenting. And the idea of parenting being, I don't wanna be so definitive as to say feelings driven, Seems a little off to me sometimes. And as I watch my adult children parent, I'm amazed. They are undoubtedly, in more ways than not, better parents and better mothers than I was. No question. And as I try and respect how they're doing it and I try and incorporate, I mean, I try to be a grandma who supports the mamas. And a lot of times it feels very unnatural to me. And sometimes my internal dialogue is something like, wow, really? Can't you just blah, blah, blah. But as a therapist, Boy, howdy, if we raised more emotionally healthy and more emotionally intelligent children into adults, we would be a whole lot better off than we are right now. I know I am one person whose experience as a therapist is very small. But my experience as a teacher and as a mother is much bigger than that. And reading, writing, arithmetic is fantastic. Great ways to teach and grow and develop children. But this focus on emotion for kids, I'm thinking is probably scientifically smart so I'm I'm moving in and I'm trying to support my kids being parents in this way of teaching them their emotional IQ okay that's kind of what I'm going to end on um I'm going to, about the book itself, first of all, I was right, it is Bryson, so it is Tina Payne Bryson and Dan Siegel, but the way the brick is broken down is it's chapter by chapter, which is pretty much each strategy, and then they have this little section at the end of each chapter on incorporating it into your adult life. So as I have been harping on the fact that this is equally valuable for adults, the book itself gives these little end of the chapters in end of the chapter snippets of how you can incorporate it in your own life and use these strategies to increase your emotional intelligence because We all need to increase our emotional intelligence, even me. Okay, this is a later ad because as I was thinking about this, I wanted to include my thoughts on more on the emotional intelligence aspect. I, without being politically correct or socially Conscientious or anything like that, I'm going to speak about how much of the emotionally driven parenting can be difficult for men. Not always, but sometimes. It can also be difficult for women. Not always, but sometimes. Um, We all know that women tend to be more emotionally driven. So let's just deal with that right out of the chute. The deal about the emotionally focused parenting and the way it feels kind of unnatural and uncomfortable for men is because men are not as attuned to their emotional IQ. That's pretty much just consistent across the board. Here's the deal. As a therapist, again, Limited experience, but enough that I can talk about this. Men understanding their emotions and therefore understanding the emotions of the people around them is very, very important. Anything that can be done, whether it is through parenting, whether it is through their own work of increasing their emotional IQ, will help the world immeasurably. I am not suggesting we turn men into emotional mush. I think masculinity is wonderful. I think sensitivity is wonderful. I think strength is wonderful. I think vulnerability is wonderful. And I think it's wonderful to have all of it. If you are in the midst of parenting, especially if you are in the midst of parenting girls, you will get a crash course on emotions. Because sometimes, and actually more often than not, to a kid, the only thing that matters is their emotion. Oftentimes to women, the only thing that matters is their emotion. And so this is a call to men or a call to anybody who might struggle with emotional vulnerability to go ahead and do some work. Don't dismiss emotions as unimportant and not part of the makeup of humanity because if your child is emotionally distraught or your sister is emotionally distraught or your husband is emotionally distraught, Emotion is the way we connect with one another. If you are not up on your emotional IQ or your emotional vulnerability, then you're going to be lacking in your opportunity and ability to connect. That's my last plug on that. I found a quote that I believe encapsulates the theme of the information in this book. And it's by C.M. Wallace, who said, If you don't listen eagerly to the little stuff when they are little, they won't tell you the big stuff when they are big, because to them, all of it has always been big stuff. This is what emotions are. They are big stuff. Everybody who has emotions wants to be connected to on that level. After that happens, then we can communicate with each other, big or little, through logic and reason. And with that, my dear friends, go forth and have a good week.